Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. September the 20th, 2022. Regular viewers of the show know I'm always rather suspicious of words, particularly new words that become fashionable. One word that has acquired enormous currency, fashionability, if that's the right word, uh, recently, is the word wellness. It's hard to know exactly what it means. When you look it up on Wikipedia, uh, you hear about alternative medicine. Apparently, there are eight dimensions of wellness, which makes me even more suspicious. And all over the internet, we can find definitions and questions about what exactly wellness is. I'm thrilled that uh, my guest today on the show is just as skeptical as I am, but much more knowledgeable about the wellness industry. Um, she is uh, the author of a new book, a book which I think exposes much of the fraud and absurdity of this industry. It's called The Gospel of Wellness, Gyms, Gurus, Goop, and the False Promise of self-care. Her name is um, Rena Raphael, and she's joining us from her home in Los Angeles. Rena, welcome. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. So uh, I think it's appropriate, Rena, that you live in Los Angeles. Um, I was just down uh, in Santa Monica uh, last week, and maybe it's a northern versus southern Californian thing, but I have to admit, this place is so annoying. And it's not surprising, perhaps, that you begin the book, this expose of the wellness industry in Santa Monica. Is it a, a Southern Californian thing, wellness? Uh, I like to say that Los Angeles is ground zero for wellness. Uh, we definitely have a history of wellness trends. But yes, I lived in New York City for 13 years. And when I moved out to LA, I was suddenly attacked by juice bars and boutique gyms and everyone talking about, you know, their self-care ritual. Uh, people here even spoke differently. They used to say things like, let me meditate on that. Or, you know, where are you picking up your crystals? Uh, so it's definitely more in fashion here than I, in other places. But this is a national global trend. LA is not the only place. I mentioned in the intro arena that this word has acquired enormous currency back in 1950 or perhaps even in 1960. No one even used the word. Now it's used all the time. What does the word mean? Who invented it and who's been peddling it? Who's responsible for this explosion of wellness? You know, the number one question I get asked is, what is wellness? Uh, people are so confused now because it could easily be applied to yoga as much as it is to activated charcoal toothpaste. Uh, this concept has sort of, has sort of been butchered uh, by hyper-consumerism. It originally started as a medical concept, then it became a radical political and social communal concept. And now it's basically being used to sell us, you know, skincare masks and to make us do very hard workouts. Um, that being said, you know, there is something to wellness. No one will argue that we should prioritize nutrition, fitness, movement, mental health. The question is, is, is what we're being sold actually getting us those things? And is it 
actually helping us or potentially adding more productivity pressures? I guess um, illness would be the the other side of the coin to wellness. Is, is that where we get the word from? I mean, illness has always existed. I mean, both linguistically and otherwise. Did wellness, did the word wellness and the wellness movement, did it grow out of the idea of illness as the antithesis of illness? Uh, I'm not sure I would say that because it's also just, I mean, it's the prevention of illness, sure, but you're also talking about stuff like mental health or, you know, now it's also come to include spirituality. So it's not necessarily always about illness management um, or chronic disease, uh, but that is part of it. And again, that's why it's really, really hard to talk about this word in this sector, which has now ballooned to a dozen subsectors because it really is individualized. It's almost like whatever it is it takes for, for you to feel and be better. And by the way, every different organization has a different interpretation of what wellness is. Um, I know that you share that graphic, but I know other organizations who uh, and right. experts who define it differently. So this is where sometimes there's just not a real cohesiveness of what wellness is. And by the way, it's also really hard to define what well is, what health is. That's subjective. That's also, you know, according to cultural norms. Some communities put more uh, emphasis on communal health instead of individual health. So again, it, it's it's really difficult sometimes to talk about it. You not only talk about it, though, you've written a book about it. You even have a chapter on democratizing wellness. Is that part of the, shall we use the word, sickness of wellness, this obsession with democratization? Everyone has the same access when we know, and particularly in a town like Los Angeles and places like Santa Monica, it's the inequality of access, uh, the inegalitarianism that probably most defines the industry. Unfortunately, that's how people view it these days. Again, it has become associated with a certain income level or certain activities or products. And that's kind of the problem um, because you do have people now who think that they're not healthy enough if they don't do these exact particular things that are usually dependent on a purchase. Or we can intimidate people. You know, there was a recent poll uh, in 2020 by MindBody that uh, discovered that half of Americans suffer from gym intimidation, which means that they're scared to join a gym because they're not fit enough. They felt they had to lose weight and get in shape because before joining a gym because they're inundated with images of people at the gym or social media influencers who are, you know, posting their perfect bodies inside a fitness studio. So this is where these trends can, can kind of devolve into something that's a little bit more harmful than helpful. Yeah, the issue of weight is, of course, another piece of this. Um, as America gets fatter, more and more obsession with losing weight, more and more of a fetishization of the body. Um, how has wellness fared in the age of COVID? I'm assuming that much of the gospel of wellness which you expose has been compounded by the pandemic and by uh, the, uh, the impact of COVID on America, particularly the inegalitarian impact. Yeah, I s interviewed a lot of women during the pandemic who were terrified that they were going to come out of the pandemic even unhealthier than before. Um, they felt like there was too much messaging about, again, all these things you had to do for your self-care or your health, or you had to be buying a Peloton and working out every day and doing these sort of beat your body up workouts. 
That being said, there has been a change in this industry in the last year. Um, and we can get into that, but you're seeing a lot of people not drink the Kool-Aid as much on wellness. You argue in the book that the, the, the key thing that the wellness industry is selling women, and I do want to, we keep on mentioning women. I, I assume there are some men involved, but it seems to be a, a, a female-driven industry, at least from the consumption point of view. Uh, it promises women the one thing they desperately desire, that's control. Talk about that, Rena. Uh, what, what, what do you mean by control and how does the wellness, the wellness industry uh, promise this to women? Right. So for a lot of women, society right now or their lives feel a little bit out of control. Um, everything from work-life balance to paltry childcare or maternity benefits. Um, you know, the double shift obviously is very hard for women. The political divide, I mean, you name it. People feel exhausted, overburdened, stressed out. And here comes an industry that sells or promises solutions. You're fatigued? Take the supplement. Um, do, do you feel like maybe, um, you know, whatever it is, you know, do you feel sluggish by organic food? Whatever it is, they promise that they can cure you. And that's very, very alluring. Um, and so there is a lot impacted in this in the sense that it is selling control, but also a lot of these activities spur a psychological feeling of control. There are sort of these repetitive rituals that make us feel like we're being more proactive about our health, as if we can get rid of sickness, aging, whatever it is. So all of that is very, very appealing. And, you know, I have a lot of empathy for a lot of women. I, as I say in the book, I was one of these women, too, who went all in on these fads. And that's because, you know, everyone wants to feel good. And that's becoming harder and harder in modern life. It's becoming too chaotic. There's too much tech dependence. There's too much chaotic news. There's, there's just not enough time to do everything. But I don't really understand what time and wellness have to do. It doesn't, I mean, gyms, gurus, goop, and I want to get into some of these G words. I, I mean, they don't confront the issue of time, do they? Or even management. They do. They promise you that you'll sleep better. If you oh. look at the biohacking industry, I have a whole chapter on biohacking. They'll tell you that, you know, you take these, you know, basically magical potions or pills and you can have less sleep. You know, any problem that you have, they can cure, or they tell you how to track things. You know, you have your aura ring that will track your sleep. So to make sure that you're on top of it, you know, it's almost like a fetishizing of health instead of just naturally folding it into your life. You've talked a lot about women. You also had an interesting piece in the LA Times where you write, a, you write quite often about how um, the wellness industry is now coming after kids. Has it before we get on to kids, has, has it come after men or are men kind of left out for better or worse of this? Sure. Men have their own pressures as well. Um, they're not as targeted by this industry as women are for reasons that I explain in the book about women's role in society and just the pressures that are on women. Uh, but I have a whole chapter on biohacking and specifically why that appeals to men. And then the biohacking industry, seeing how well it did for men, then decided to adapt it for women. Uh, but yeah, it, there's real reason why uh, women are terrified of their body wash, why women are going fully organic, why women are going to boutique gyms. Uh, there are specific reasons and 
as I explained in the book, you know, sometimes the, you know, it comes from companies and gurus who are really trying to help women. And sometimes it's really just preying on their vulnerabilities. Is it a white thing, Rena, white women, or does it cover all different ethnicities? Uh, well, now I would say it's not just white women. I mean, there's plenty of meditation apps for different groups and ethnicities. So it's definitely not something that's just white women. But I will say that the more consumerist, uh, hyper-individualistic parts of it have traditionally been more upper income and more white. And how is it coming after kids now? What, what is the language associated with children? And are they doing it through parents, through mothers? Or are they directly... Uh, are they, dec are they uh, directly hawking their products, their ideology to children? Well, there's both. There's definitely parents who take their kids along with them to yoga classes or who will give their kids crystals. But then you do have, again, industries who are just seeing success with one sector and they try to adapt it to another who are saying, how can we make this kid friendly? So that's everything from meditation companies to... Um, you know, uh, skincare rituals. And in the piece, I, I discuss how in some ways, some of these things can be beneficial for kids, but in other ways, it, they don't necessarily have the sophisticated reasoning to interpret some of these messaging. You know, a lot of self-care puts the onus on the individual, meaning if you're not calm, if you're not zen, it's because there's something wrong inside of you. And that can lead to self-blame instead of saying, hey, maybe I'm stressed out because there's too much work or, you know, something's going on in my family. Instead, it's all on you. And it's very individualistic instead of communal. And I also spoke to some therapists who were telling me that they were speaking to teen girls who are so stressed out about their self-care routines. They were drying out their skin from too many skincare masks. And if they were ever stressed, they said, oh my God, it's because I wasn't prioritizing a bubble bath. This is where I think some of that messaging is very harmful for children. In terms of mental health, is this the chicken or the egg? Uh, to, to, to rather crude, uh, in terms of the gospel of wellness, um, is it the consequence of our epidemic of uh, uh, mental, uh, a mental health epidemic, um, or is it the cause, or is it both? It really depends on the sector. It really depends on the demographic. Um, you know, I wouldn't say that people are stressed out because of the wellness industry, although there are definitely people who have been harmed by this industry. You know, I speak to people who suffer from orthorexia, which is essentially an obsession with clean eating, or people who got fitness OCD, or people who, you know, delayed real medical treatment because of the alternative health scene. Um, but you know, I think if you speak to the average American, they will tell you that they don't really feel supported right now or they're really concerned about troubling trends in this country. I mean, even if you speak to someone in certain in certain communities that don't have the right medical care or don't have access to it, don't have the money for it, it's obviously then very enticing that they would want to take health into their own hands or find different solutions. Is this ideology of wellness, is it infiltrating middle America? I mean, you're writing, you're, you're talking from L.A., the home of it. Uh, I'm guessing it's reasonably healthy on the East Coast. It certainly exists in, in, in Northern California as well. Uh, do you find it in the heartland? Not as much. It's really more urban and higher income. You know, I went to Alabama and I remember I was at a gas station and I just started asking people, you know, oh, you know, what's your wellness routine? What do you guys do? 
and they started laughing. They were like, we don't use that word wellness. And by the way, we have dinner with our families. We go to the lake. You know, we, you know, have a beer with our friends. Like that's what we do for our health, our mental health. That's what we do to feel better. Uh, so they interpret it a little differently uh, than perhaps potentially certain communities in urban cities do. What about the role of social media? You had an interesting piece on the New York Times recently about TikTok being flooded with health myths. Um, how central are social networks like TikTok, which are particularly popular with young people, young women? How, how, how influential are they in spreading the gospel of wellness? So influential. And I mean, in the book, I document uh, Instagram influencers, uh, especially fitfluencers and alternative health uh, influencers. But right now we're seeing the real rise of TikTok. And uh, a new report actually just came out that found that 20% of TikTok search feeds misinformation. And that's everything from uh, the invasion of Ukraine to the vaccine. Uh, listen, I, I understand why people veer towards influencers, right? They are usually, they usually speak to our most aspirational selves. They are usually beautiful, they're thin, they're charismatic, they have these pristine marble countertop kitchens, and they're available. You know, if you speak to the average woman, they don't get to see their doctor that often. Um, they don't have access to medical experts who are obviously very, very busy. And if they do go to their doctor, they get maybe 10, 15 minutes with them versus an influencer who is posting several times a day, who will engage with you. You can DM them. I mean, it, it's just not an even playing field. So the piece that I wrote about in the New York Times is about how a lot of experts, so this is scientists, this is physicians, uh, this is cosmetic scientists, are trying to battle this tidal wave of misinformation by getting on social media and debunking a lot of health myths. They are yeah, very I, much- I mean, you, to, to quote you, I'm willing to bet, you know, at least one girl that's using steroids every single day starts a young man on a TikTok video. It's a good piece. Yeah, and, and here's the thing. They go viral because they usually start these videos with something that's really, really juicy or shocking, you know, and then you're going to forward to someone and be like, hey, did you hear about this? Whereas a doctor or medical expert isn't going to, you know, get that sort of reaction because they don't lie and they don't exaggerate things. And of course, you know, all of these platforms end up serving you the stuff that is doing the most well that day, that's getting the most traction. So, it, you know, I'm so excited that more health influencers, that scientific based influencers are getting out there. But I mean, they're still up against a huge, huge tidal wave of misinfo. Yeah, there certainly seems to be, uh, Rena, a generational quality to this uh, daughter of some family friends of ours um, is an influencer, a TikTok and Instagram influencer. And there's a very odd chemistry in the, her relationship with her mother. How would you make sense of this wellness industry and particularly the rise of, of young influencers uh, in generational terms? Well, you know, I actually just did a piece for the LA Times uh, about the generational divide. And actually what we're seeing is that a lot of Gen Z is actually pushing back against wellness they associate the productivity pressured perfectionist mandate of wellness with the millennial generation that wanted everything to look and be perfect and they hate it 
they also are rebelling against sort of the fear-mongering messaging. Um, you know, they'll say things to me like, you know, if we want to have an Oreo, we can have an Oreo and we're not going to drop dead. Everyone needs to calm down. And a lot of these Gen Zers were raised by uh, Gen Xers. So they were raised in a more practical household. So we are seeing a little bit of a shift. That being said, uh, certain groups are more preyed upon. So that's usually the elderly, the sick, um, parents of children with special needs. So it's obviously not perfect, but there is a little bit of a course correction coming. And, and I will say this, even millennials, I, I think they're getting tired of the wellness industry. Um, I think they don't really buy in on all the cure-all claims like they used to. And that's partially because coming out of the pandemic, there was such an emphasis on health and on misinformation. But also at this point, they have a cabinet filled to the brim with stuff that doesn't work. All these CBD creams, supplements, all these pricey self-care tools. And now they're just sort of pausing before buying in on the next big trend. And there's always some new fad. Well, your book is timely. The Gospel of Wellness, Gyms, Gurus, Goop, and the False Promise of Self-Care. Um, you had a piece in, in, uh, on your work in uh, Salon. Um, the Cult of Gwyneth. Um, and why Goop fans don't buy the snake oil. A couple of questions, Rena. Firstly, how responsible is Gwyneth Paltry for all this? And secondly, what exactly is Goop? <laughs> well, you know, listen, Goop is not the entirety of the wellness industry and alternative health and snake oil goes back uh, over 100 years. OK, she didn't create that. She just happens to be one of the most notorious figures because she's a celebrity. Uh, that piece is specifically about the fact that when I've gone to the Goop the Goop summits and when I've spoken to Goop fans, a lot of them realize that she shouldn't be taken that seriously. Like they kind of realize that it's half entertainment. It's a lot how people used to treat, you know, sort of the medical road shows with snake oil salesmen. But that being said, she does popularize ideas that then infiltrate within media and those are very harmful. For example, she talks about certain conditions that the medical industry doesn't, um, doesn't say are real. Or for example, she popularizes supplements and there's no way to tell if those are in any way effective. So she does do some harm. And also she helped popularize wellness as an aspirational lifestyle. And that's problematic as well. But no, she's not responsible for this. She's just the one who made sure that we're always talking about it every week in the newspaper. The politics of this, Rena, you keep on talking about snake oil salesmen. I can think of one snake oil salesman in chief who uh, gets a lot of press. Um, is there some political ramifications of this or is this really independent of politics? Does it, for example, attract a particular political class on the left or the right? And does it have political manifestations or consequences? Well, it really depends what group you're talking about, but I did interview a lot of um, anti-vaxxers, for example, and I saw mm. that a lot of their hesitation or a lot of their rejection of Western medicine was really imbibed with a political ideology. You know, they're very anti-establishment. They would couch everything in the language of liberation, freedom, my choice, that sort of thing. And that kind of obstructed rational or logical thinking. Um, and, and, this 
it kind of happens with a lot of wellness rituals in psychology, which is that we over-identify with certain values. And then we can't separate that from what is actually going on. So yeah, I, I did find that a lot, that a lot of anti-vaxxers from both sides, a lot of them were from the super left or some of them were, you know, from Malibu and some of them were, you know, Republicans. So it, it, it was really more about how it was, they thought it was a conspiracy, all of it. You know, the FDA is against you. The pharmaceuticals industry is against you. And once they've accepted that, it's really, really hard to convince them out of it because it's part of their value system. It's almost part of their identity. You know, there's so much about belief in the wellness industry that people don't really understand, don't really realize. It's all about the way you think about yourself. Uh, by the way, for those people watching, as opposed just to listening, that big American flag behind Rena does not mean that she is the Alex Jones critic of the wellness industry. It just happens to be an American flag that uh, I think her husband uses for other reasons. So Rena uh, is not a, uh, an extreme nationalist uh, and she has no association, uh, fortunately, with Alex Jones. Had she... Yeah. Any association, she wouldn't be on this show. Finally, Rina. No, oh, I don't. I don't. I don't politicize the American flag. It's an American flag. <laughs> yeah, but it's an American flag, uh, and there are, the book is the Gospel of Wellness, or in a way, a kind of religious book. And then let's end with that. The sort of religion. We did a show with. Um, uh, it was one of my favorite shows actually of the last year. I've often referred to it. Or, uh, on, on future shows with uh, the UC Berkeley sociologist Caroline Chen. She has a new book out called Work, Pray, Code, When Work Becomes Religion in Silicon Valley. And it's not just about actually Silicon Valley. It's about the way in which work and work is becoming religion because of the spiritual vacuum. Your book um, also is, of course, a book about religion, the gospel of wellness. Do you think that one of the reasons why wellness is so seductive is because of a broader kind of spiritual vacuum in America and that as people become less religious, they have to turn to other things like wellness? Yeah, I have a whole chapter on this, on what's happened to religious and spiritual life in America. But yes, in America, which is a deeply religious country, if you take away organized religion, something else will fill that gap. And so it's not just health and, you know, the pursuit of health and wellness. It can be social justice. It can be politics. It could be, you know, as that author mentioned, it could be work. Um, but people are looking for meaning, guidance, community, identity. And those things are getting harder and harder to get in our society. So they will go anywhere where they can find it. Uh, and this is why, you know, I talk about how people are really treating their gym literally as a church. It, you know, people, it's somewhat tongue in cheek, but I really found examples where health has emerged as a regulatory framework, much like religion, telling us how to live. Well, you can tell us how to live, Rina. You, uh, you're a journalist who as you acknowledge in the book and in this conversation, you were first seduced by this, then you've written this expose. How have you done it? You seem pretty healthy. I wouldn't use the word wellness with you, but you're not mm. ill. Um, is, there a, is there a line between this obsession with wellness and being overweight and unhealthy? Can one walk this fine line in America today? 
Yeah, definitely. And in the book, I speak about the fact that I became so obsessed with wellness rituals. This was before I became a full-time wellness industry reporter. And, you know, when you think back on it, it's it's a little peculiar because I wasn't unwell. I had no chronic conditions. I was fine. But I became consumed with the fact that I had to do certain things or spend all this money on my health. You know, uh, I believe it's called the worried well. Uh, now I take a much more relaxed approach. Uh, I'm not terrified of my body wash having toxic chemicals that are going to kill me. I can eat a conventional non-organic apple. Um, I don't beat myself up if I don't get to exercise every day. So, I, you know, that's kind of the message of my book that everyone can just take it a little easier and we don't have to buy or spend or do all these things to feel okay. Well, rather than buying goop, I would strongly suggest you get hold of uh, Rena Raphael's new book, The Gospel of Wellness. I think it's a much better investment than buying the next tube of goop, whatever goop actually is. Congratulations, Rena, on Thank the you. book. It's just out today. Uh, and I think it's going to be one of those books that really does expose the fraud, the scam of much of the wellness industry. It's always nice to have that kind of book out, my kind of book. Uh, what else would you suggest, Reno, we read? What are you reading these days? Ooh, how many am I allowed to recommend? As many as you want. <laughs> uh, Maybe well, three, what... three max? Sure. Well, one book that uh, I read but I actually dipped back into recently is Through the Shadowlands, um, A Science Writer's Odyssey into an Illness Science Doesn't Understand. And this is by Julie Raymeyer. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Uh, but this is a science writer who wrote about having ME or chronic fatigue syndrome. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of talk right now about what's going on with long COVID um, and in the sense that people are suffering from it long term. And so I think it's really good to actually listen to accounts of people who are suffering through chronic conditions and what it's like for them as an American and not necessarily having the support systems. I think you get a better framework of what it's like for that type of person. So there's that. Um, I'm in the middle of the quick fix why Fad Psychology Can't Cure Our Social Ills by Jesse Single. And this is a journalist who exposes the many holes in today's best-selling behavioral science or all those TED-friendly talks about psychology. Yeah, and the uh, brain, I hope. I'm so right. about the brain. It's a, right. the least and brainy thing I've ever heard. Right. And so he'll give examples like supposedly the Army spent hundreds of million dollars on a positive psychology intervention geared at preventing PTSD, but supposedly doesn't work. So, you know, I love when we can reconsider the science. And I am one of those people, for example, even within wellness, I love learning something new. And I like someone changing my mind about something. So I'm in the middle of that. That one sounds um, good. I always, whenever I have anyone on the show who says, the research says this or that, you know they're lying. Well, also, just, just because there's research doesn't mean it's true. There's good well, there's research, there's research, bad research, I mean, you know. <laughs> use research to right. suit whatever argument you're trying to make. Sure. But I mean, like, even in the sector that I cover, uh, there's a lot of what's uh, now being called science washing, where people just say, well, you know, there was a clinical trial. Was it a good trial? What was the sample size? You know, there's, anyway, I'm excited about that book. And I just ordered The Poison Squad. One Chemist, Single-Minded Crusade for Food Safety at the Turn of the 20th Century. Um, and this is by best-selling author Deborah Bloom. But, you know, I think 
a lot of us have this impression that our food supply was so much healthier and better and pure uh, over a century ago. And actually, that's not the case. Uh, there was a lot of harmful chemicals uh, mm. and cleaning products. So it kind of dispels this myth that oh, we just need to go back to, you know, the village life 100 years ago. So I'm really, really excited to read about that and the struggle to get a healthier food supply in America.